All right, let's pray. Our great God in heaven, we pray that you would manifest something more of yourself to us today. We pray that you would open up the scriptures, open up the word of God to our understanding, to our hearts, and may we respond, Lord, with our wills. We pray that some difficult things to understand might become plain and clear and simple and easy to follow, easy to see. So do your work today, Lord God. We pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. So this morning, we are continuing our sermon series on the doctrines of grace. If you were here last Sunday, it was a doozy. It was rough. If you survive that, it's all downhill from there. Because last week, we were in Romans chapter 9. And I think probably Romans 9 is, if not the most, one of the most difficult pills to swallow in the Bible. What I mean by that, it's not easy to accept. When you just read the plain words for what it says, it's difficult. It's hard. And if you were able to swallow that pill, that's awesome. But if you're still gagging a little bit, get a big drink of water and ask the Holy Spirit to bring it down. Because it will be good for your soul if you can swallow that pill. Uh, we are going to approach the doctrine of unconditional election from a different vantage point today. Instead of Romans 9, we're going to Ephesians chapter 1. And we're going to exposit this passage, and then we're going to look throughout the Bible at how the Bible practically applies the doctrine of election. Why did God give it to us? Why did he reveal this truth? Well, there are some very, very good reasons that the Lord had to teach us this truth. So go with me over to Ephesians 1, and let's read the text first of all. It's Ephesians 1, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. Now, right here in verse 4, the main verb of this section is the word chose, just as He chose us. And that word in the Greek chose means to pick out from. So if God picked out from, that means that he picked some out and he left others there. If I, if there's a fruit basket with all kinds of different fruit in it, like strawberries and cherries and bananas and melons, and I choose a banana, I pick a banana out of that fruit basket, by default, some of the fruit is left in the basket. I choose one thing, the rest is, stays there. So the doctrine of election implies that God has chosen some and passed over others. He has made a sovereign decision of his will to choose certain people unto eternal life. The word chose in the Greek is also in the middle voice, and that may mean nothing to you, but it is an important distinction because any verb in the middle voice means the one doing the action does it for himself. So we could translate it like this. Just as God chose us in him for himself before the foundation of the world. So what that really means is that God chose out of the mass of mankind a distinct people for his own glory. This was the way God is going to display his glory. And folks, really, if you, if you don't know that by now, let me just tell you, that's the reason God does everything he does. This might be surprising to you. You might think he does everything he does because of us, but that's not the truth. God does everything he does for his own glory. Read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and this theme will pop out at you chapter after chapter after chapter. So that's why God is doing it. This morning, we're going to look at nine different facets of the doctrine of election from Ephesians chapter 1. So we're going to lift up the doctrine of election like a diamond, and then look at it from nine different perspectives to see its brilliance and its glory. And then we're going to seek to apply the doctrine to our lives. Number one, we're going to look at the preeminence 
of election. The preeminence. You see, Paul launches into a sentence starting in verse 3, and he doesn't finish that sentence until the end of verse 14. This is a 202-word sentence in the Greek. It just goes on and on and on. And the theme of this sentence is given to us in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Now, here's the idea. God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, so we should be blessing God. You see that? Because God has blessed us so richly, it's only right that now we would bless God for what he's given to us. And the very first blessing that Paul lists is the blessing of election. Right? Verse 4, the very first one, just as he chose us in him, election. That's why we call this the preeminence of election. It's the very first blessing Paul lists before he talks about our adoption as sons, before he talks about our redemption, before he talks about the forgiveness of our sins, before he talks about our inheritance, or about the sealing with the Holy Spirit, the very first one is that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Now, why do you think election is preeminent? Why would Paul list it first? It's because every other blessing that we get in the Christian life depends on this first one. If you were not included in the number of the elect here, those other blessings will never be yours. You'll never receive forgiveness. You'll never be redeemed. You'll never have an inheritance. You'll never be sealed with the Spirit. Someone put it like this. Election depends on God alone. All other blessings depend on election. Do you see that? This is the fountainhead of all other spiritual blessings. If you were included in the elect in Christ before the foundation of the world, then all these other ones Paul's about to list are yours. But if you are not, then they're not yours. So that's why we say it's preeminent. Number two, let's look at the author of election. The Bible says in verse four, just as he chose us. Who is the author? Who is the he in verse 4? Well, look back to verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us. The he is the God and Father of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ did not elect you, and the Holy Spirit did not elect you. God the Father elected you. If you are one of God's chosen people, you have the Father to thank for that. Now, all three members of the Trinity have a role to play in election. The Father's like the architect. He draws up the plans for the house. The Son is like the purchaser. He buys the materials. The Holy Spirit is the actual construction worker who takes the materials and he assembles them and actually builds them into the house. But the Father is the architect. He plans what's to take place. He he draws up these plans from all eternity. And the unfolding of human history is just the, the bringing together of all of God's eternal plans into reality. Let me show you this from some different passages like 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of who? God the Father. God the Father. By the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ. All, me- all three members of the Trinity are included in this verse, but he says they are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Um, we don't have time this morning to go into the idea of foreknowledge, but I'm sure it's going to come out in this series. We'll get to it. It doesn't mean simply that God knows who of their own free will is going to choose him. It means that God has set his love upon certain individuals. He foreknows, he foreloves them. But anyway, there we have it again in 1 Peter 1, verse 1 and 2. Then in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, 
we have it again. 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 4. He says here, Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, His choice of you. Here it is again. Beloved by God, His, that's God's choice of you. So this is God the Father who has elected certain people before the foundation of the world in Christ. So the author of election, according to Ephesians 1, is the Father. It's God the Father. Let's let's turn our attention now to the objects of election. In Ephesians 1, it says, He chose us. Us. Who are the objects? Who are the ones chosen? Well, it might be helpful to distinguish between three types of election found in the Bible. You have national election, vocational election, and salvational election. Okay? National election is when God chooses a nation to fulfill his purposes in the world, just like he chose Israel. Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 8, says that he didn't choose Israel because they were the greatest of all the nations. In fact, they were the smallest. But he chose them because he loved them. And he loved them because he loved them. And he was fulfilling his promise to them. That's all he says there in Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8. That's national election. But then you have what's called vocational election. And that's where God chooses particular people to fulfill certain roles. Like God chose Aaron to be the high priest. He chose Moses to be the deliverer, to lead his people out of Egypt. He chose David to be the king of Israel. He chose the apostle Paul and Peter to be apostles. That's vocational election. In Romans 9.15, God is talking to Ananias and he says, Go to Paul and pray for him because I have chosen him to be my chosen instrument to bear witness before kings and Gentiles. So that's vocational election. But then the third kind of election in scripture is salvational. And this is the kind of election where God chooses individuals unto eternal life through the work of his son, Jesus. Now, what kind of election is Paul speaking about here in Ephesians chapter one? Let's apply our three types for a minute. Is he writing to a nation, telling them that they have been chosen to fulfill his purposes in the world? No, he, he's writing to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. So this is not a nation. This is a collection of individual believers scattered throughout the region of Ephesus. So it can't be national election. What about vocational? Is he talking about vocational election here? Is he talking about calling individuals to certain tasks, certain roles, certain functions? No, because it says in verse 4 and 5 that he predestined them not to a role, but to be adopted as his sons. Folks, he's talking here about salvational election. He has chosen and predestined certain individuals unto adoption of sons, unto eternal life, unto salvation. So we've seen already the preeminence, the author, and the objects of election. Let's notice now the sphere of election. Because it says in verse 4, just as he chose us in him. In who? That's in Jesus Christ. The end of verse 3, he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he, God, chose us in him, Jesus, before the foundation of the world. So the sphere of election is in Christ. Now, what does he mean by that? What is he talking about? I believe what he's saying here is that the decree of the Father doesn't take place apart from the person and work of his Son. God makes the plans, but those plans don't actually save anyone until Jesus Christ has come into the world and lived a perfect life, died a substitutionary death, and then rose bodily from the grave, and then the Holy Spirit must take that work of the Lord Jesus and apply it effectually to the lives of sinners by awakening them, convicting them of sin, and regenerating them, giving them new life. Then salvation takes place in a person's life, but not before. So election is the plan of God, 
but it takes Jesus Christ and his work to bring it into fruition, to bring it to pass. So election saves no one. Election determines the who, but not the how. Election marks out those who will be saved, but it takes the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ to actually save anybody. So the cross of Christ is the instrument that carries out the Father's eternal plan. And that's why Paul mentions the Father's role in choosing us in verses 4 through 6, and then directly after that, in verses 7 through 12, he goes into talking about his Son and what Jesus Christ has done in his role to save sinners. And then the last two verses, verses 13 and 14, Paul talks about what the Holy Spirit does in his role in saving sinners. So first he talks about the Father, verses 3 through 6, the Son, 7 through 12, and then the Holy Spirit, verses 13 and 14. He chose us in him. It might make it easier to understand if you if you paraphrased it this way. God chose us to be in him before the foundation of the world. Does that make it a little bit clearer if you think about it that way? God chose us to be in him. You see, salvation occurs when a person is united to Jesus Christ with a living union, just like a branch that is living in in a in a tree trunk. It's it's receiving its life and nourishment from that tree. We must be grafted into Christ where we are receiving spiritual life from him. And that life flows through his people. We're vitally, organically joined to Jesus Christ. So the Father chose Christ to be the Redeemer of his people, and then the Father gave those people to his Son. You see, when Jesus came into the world, he came into the world on behalf of a certain group of people. He was their representative. Do you remember that when Adam was there in the garden, when Adam had a choice to make between eating of the forbidden fruit and not eating of the forbidden fruit, he stood as a representative. Uh, Romans 5, 12 to 21 will help you with this, if you would like to jot that down and read that carefully later. Adam stood as a representative of, of the human race. And what God was going to count, whatever Adam did, to the entire group of descendants that proceeded forth from Adam. So when Adam fell, that that guilt, that shame, that disobedience was imputed to or reckoned to all of his descendants. And so God decides, okay, I'm going to save sinners the same way that they have fallen. They fell through a representative. I'm going to save them through a representative. So Jesus Christ comes into the world representing not everybody, because not everyone will be saved. He came into the world to represent those the Father had given him from the foundation of the world. And so he lives on their behalf. He dies on their behalf. He rises again on their behalf. He ascends to heaven on their behalf. And he intercedes for them in heaven as their high priest on their behalf. He's the representative of his people. There we have the sphere. Let's look fifthly at the timing of election. When when did this happen? Verse 4 says, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So that means before God created the universe. This is before Genesis 1-2. All of this was happening. God came up with this plan before there were stars, galaxies, planets, before earth existed. The plan was in his mind and he had set it in motion. Now that's a mind-boggling concept, isn't it? And this is, you may say, well, Brian, are, are you sure you're making, aren't you making too much out of this one little verse? I mean, maybe you've, maybe you've understanding this wrong. Maybe, maybe, doesn't God sort of make up his mind as he sees people choosing or rejecting his son? And then he kind of re- chooses or rejects them based on what they do. Well, let's look at some other scriptures in the New Testament to see what they have to say about this. One of them is in Revelation 17. And of course, the book of Revelation can be a confusing book, but there are some things that we can glean that are very clear from this book, and I want you to see one of them from verse 8 of Revelation 17. 
The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. Now notice this part. And those who dwell on the earth, whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will wonder when they see the beast that he was and is not and will come. Now that's just an an interesting phrase that we just need to meditate on. Those whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. That seems to imply to me that some people's names were written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, and certain people's names were not. Would you get that same impression by reading that verse? I mean, that that's how I, that's what I come away thinking as I read verse 8. It seems to be clear to me. Second uh, Timothy 1.9 is another one. 2 Timothy 1, verse 9. We'll break right into this this sentence. Verse 9 says, Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. So, Revelation 17, 17, 8 says, From the foundation of the world, Second Timothy 1.9 says God's purpose and grace was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. The literal Greek is before times eternal. <laughs> if you can get before eternity, there you've got God in his mind coming up with this master plan of how he's going to glorify himself and his son and his Holy Spirit through the redemption of a multitude of sinners that no man can number. Let's look at another one. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. And verse 13. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. Now there's another verse that gives us the timing of our election. You see it? From the beginning. Now, he's not super clear on that. Well, what does that mean from the beginning? Well, we'd have to go to these other scriptures we've already been reading to give us more precise information. But at least it tells us that God is not making up this plan as he goes along. The plan is set from the beginning, from all eternity, from the foundation of the world. And then one final passage might help. It's Matthew 25 and verse 34. Matthew chapter 25, verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So there was a kingdom prepared for the sheep from the foundation of the world. There are certain people who God's purpose of grace was granted them in Christ from all eternity. There are certain people whose names were written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. So it's not just this one passage in Ephesians 1 that gives us the timing of election. You can find it in many, many different places in Scripture. Augustus Toplady, who was an evangelical in the 1700s, he wrote that famous hymn, Rock of Ages. He put it like this. The book of life, or decree of election, is the marriage register of the saints, in which their everlasting espousal to Christ stands indelibly recorded by the pen of God's free and eternal love. There's a lot here. I should probably read this twice. (laughs) I'll do it again. The book of life, or decree of election, is the marriage register of the saints, in which their everlasting espousal to Christ stands indelibly recorded by the pen of God's free and eternal love. The elect were betrothed to Christ from everlasting in the covenant of grace. They are actually married to him and join hands with him in conversion, but they are not taken home to the bridegroom's house until death dismisses them from the body. 
Charles Haddon Spurgeon put it like this, I am sure he chose me before I was born, or else he never would have chosen me afterward. Have you ever thought that about yourself? I sure have. <laughs> if God's choice of me depended on, upon you know me, forget it. <laughs> it had to depend on something other than me. So there we have the timing of election. Let's go number six to the results of election. What does election result in? Well, back to Ephesians 1. Let's pick it up at the end of verse 4. There are actually two results from this, these scriptures that we can see. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. That's the first one. Adoption as sons. That's the result. The second one is, let me find it. Oh, verse 4. That we would be holy and blameless before him. Those are the two results of election. Number one, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Number two, that we would be adopted as his sons. So let's take the two of those. First of all, that we would be holy and blameless before him. This blessing actually starts to take place in our lives the moment we are justified. When I talk about justified or justification, do you have a solid understanding of what I mean by that? It's really important that you get this, understand that doctrine clearly. And that, that was the doctrine upon which the whole Protestant Reformation hinged. That was what Martin Luther was banging on. That's what got him in so much trouble. It simply means that when a, when a sinner puts his faith in Christ, God counts him as righteous. God pronounces him righteous. It's not that he's actually righteous, but God looks on him and sees him as righteous. It's like he takes the righteous garments of Jesus and puts it around him. So when God looks on him, he sees his son. He sees the spotless purity of the Lord Jesus, even though he still commits sin. He still messes up and he still fails. Well, this blessing here of being holy and blameless before him begins the moment you are justified. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The moment you have faith in Christ, saving faith, God imputes, reckons, credits the righteousness of His Son to you. And you stand faultless. In spite of all your mess-ups and sins and all that, in spite of all that, you're still faultless before Him through Christ. Now that's awesome. But it even goes further. So we are we are seen by God. We are pronounced by God as righteous. And so we have a positional righteousness right now, the moment we trust him. But there's coming a day when we're going to have a practical righteousness, an actual righteousness. And that's the moment we're glorified. That's the moment we stand before Jesus Christ in heaven and our body. We've been given new bodies that are not tempted, that don't um, incline themselves towards sin. There's coming a day when those who are justified will never sin again ever. That's what Paul's talking about in Ephesians 5, where he, I'm going to break into this discussion where he's talking about husbands loving their wives, but notice what he says. Ephesians 5.25, husbands love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. There's justification. He has cleansed the church by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself. That's glorification. That he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So positionally, we stand before God right now, holy and blameless. But one day, we're going to actually stand before him holy and blameless. Isn't that, um, that's, that's mind-boggling, but that's going to happen to us. Um, at the end of Philippians chapter 3, he says he's going to transform this body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his own glory by the exertion of his power, even to uh, subject all things to himself. So that's the first result of election, that we would be holy and blameless before him. The second one is that we would be his adopted children. Back in Ephesians 1, the last two words of verse 4 say, In love, he predestined us to adoption 
as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. Now, what does it mean to be adopted as a son of God or as a daughter of God? Adoption is an act of God whereby he brings men and women from Adam's ruined family into his own family, making them his own children and granting them all the rights and privileges of his own sons. So we know what adoption is, right? People adopt children all the time. They take someone who's not biologically from their family, they bring them in, and now that child is given an inheritance like any of the other children. They're treated just like any of the other children. That's what God did with us. Remember Jesus said to the Pharisees, you are of your father the devil. We are all born children of Satan. We're in the wrong family by birth. God has to adopt us and take us out of that wrong family and bring us into his family, his kingdom. And then we have received the adoption as sons. So those are the results. That we would be holy and blameless before him. Two, that we would be adopted as sons. Number seven, what's the motive of election? What motivated God to do this choosing? Verse 4 says, in love. There you've got it. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons. The motivator was the love of God. God is love. However, God's love is focused. It's like one of those um, magnifying glasses that we used to take, and you point it just right, and it takes the, the sunlight, and it <laughs> you can start burning things into wood just by focusing that laser light. God's love is focused. It's focused on these people that he's been describing here in verse 3 and 4. So there's there's the motivation for us. It's God's un, unchanging, eternal, sovereign love. Now, do you remember in our study in Romans 9, it says, Jacob, I have loved, Esau, I have hated. There is a sense in which God loves everyone in the world. He has a general love. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. I understand John 3.16 not to be talking about the elect. I understand it to be talking about everybody. There's a general love of God to provide this world a Savior. But there's a different kind of love God has for his elect. Do you remember we just read in Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. The church. Now, If I told Debbie, you know, honey, I really love you, but I love everybody else in our church just as much as I love you. How is she going to react to that? (laughs) I'm going to have a black eye, (laughs) right? (laughs) And it's not true. I don't love all the other women in the same way that I love my wife. And parents, you don't love every other kid on your block the same way you love your own kids. God has a special love for his elect. He has a special love for his children. Jacob, I have loved. Esau, I have hated. There is a difference between the love of God. I used, I was brought up to believe God's love is the same for everybody. It's not. It's just not true. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. That's what the Bible says. A special, discriminating, effectual, covenant, saving love is the kind of love he has for his own. And we see this. It's interesting. Once you get this concept in your mind, just start reading through the New Testament and it's going to pop out all over the place. You're going to see the love of God and his election coupled together. Let me just give you a couple of examples. Uh, Colossians 3 verse 12 is the first one. Colossians 3 12 says, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and what? Beloved. Do you see that those who are chosen of God are also called holy and they're also called beloved? Interesting. How about 2 Thessalonians 2.13? We've already read it once, but maybe you didn't see this point the first time. 2 Thessalonians 2.13. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. And now I'll just give you those two. You can read the rest of the New Testament and you're going to see this, you're going to see it popping out. You're going to start seeing the love of God is coupled to his election. 
because there's a special, powerful, saving love. It's not just a general kind of love. He, he loves his creatures because they're his creatures and he made them. But this is different. This is a love that is determined to save them. Again, Augustus, Augustus Top Lady put it like this. God's everlasting love, his decree of election, and eternal covenant of redemption are the three hinges on which the door of man's salvation turns. Let me mention those three hinges again. His decree of election, his eternal covenant of redemption, and his everlasting love. Those are the three hinges upon which our salvation turns. Okay, let's go to number eight, the cause of election. What caused God to elect whom he elected? Isn't that the big question? Why did God do what he did? And I'm afraid I'm going to disappoint you here because I don't have a lot to share, but I have a little bit. Let's go back to Ephesians 1 again. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. Here it comes. According to the kind intention of his will. That's what this election was according to. The kind intention. Intention is speaking about a purpose. This was a kind purpose of God's will. Now the King James, I actually like the way the King James puts it here. According to the good pleasure of his will. The good pleasure of his will. If you and I were chosen unto salvation, we didn't just get lucky. Luck had nothing to do with it. The good pleasure of God's will had everything to do with it. It might feel like you just got lucky, but that's not what the case is. God had a reason. We don't know exactly what that reason was. Perhaps in eternity, God is going to disclose this big master plan with all of his intricate details, and we'll see the big picture. We don't get the big picture yet. But we do know there was a plan, and there was a reason for that plan, and the plan was formed according to the good pleasure of God's will. We do know that the reason was not because of our personal worthiness. It's not as though God looked at Paula and Phil and Myong and said, hey, they're way more worthy than the rest of humanity. I think I'll choose them. Not true. We were children of wrath, even as the rest, Ephesians 2 says, in the same boat, sinking to the bottom. So it had nothing to do with us, but it did have something to do in the mind and plan and purpose of Almighty God. Let's say a woman makes two decisions when she wakes up in the morning. One decision is she's going to go to the dentist. The second decision is she's going to plant a beautiful flower garden. Only one of those decisions can be said to be a decision that she made according to her good pleasure. Right? Nobody really likes going to the dentist, but you may love that beautiful flower garden. It brings you all kind of delight and joy. This decision on God's part was the latter kind. He made this decision according to the good pleasure of his will. You see, God delights in saving sinners. He finds joy. Well, let me, let me show this to you from uh, Luke chapter 10, verse 21. Luke 10, 21. Here's Jesus talking and he's praying to God. He says, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this was well pleasing in your sight. You see it? He hid these things from some. He revealed them to others. Why? Because it was well-pleasing in his sight to do it that way. That's about the most information we get in the Bible for the cause of election. We know it was not based on our worthiness, but we do know that it was pleasing to God to do so and that he formed it for that purpose. I also find it interesting in this whole section, verses 3 to 14, that there's nothing stated about the sinner's will here at all. This does not say that God chose us according to our will. He chose us according to his own will, the kind intention of his will. It's, it's God's will, God's purpose, God's choice, all the way through the passage. So election is not conditioned upon our faith, 
It's not conditioned upon our repentance. It's not conditioned upon our good works. Those things are the fruits of election. They flow from election. They don't cause it. They're not the root. Now let's look at number nine, which is the goal. What is the goal of election? Well, we find that in verse six, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. You see, God has a goal in choosing whom he will. And his goal is that his grace would be praised, would be glorified, that we would understand that the sheer magnificence of the grace of God. I, I am afraid we don't really, we're not really thrilled. We're not blown away. We're not overwhelmed by grace. And that's, that's, something's wrong with us if we're not blown away by the grace of God because that's what God chose you in order that you would be blown away by His grace. So He chose you to the praise of the glory the beauty, the magnificence, the splendor of His sovereign grace. God wants you to bow in the dust and just be overwhelmed with what He has done. How gracious He's been to you. When you were in that boat with the rest of all humanity sinking to the bottom, He plucked you out. He put you on a life raft and He brought you safely to shore. And there's a lot of people perishing, but you made it because of Him, because of what He did. All the way through this passage, we're going to see the same thing. Paul talks about the work of the Father in verses 3 through 6, and then he ends the whole thing up by saying, to the praise of the glory of His grace. Then he talks about the work of the Son in verses 7 through 12, and he ends the whole section in verse um, 12 by saying, to the praise of His glory. And then he talks about the work of the Spirit in verses 13 and 14. And he ends that section by saying, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of the glory of the Father, to the praise of the glory of the Son, to the praise of the glory of the Holy Spirit. Election was given with a goal to bring God glory and praise in the display of his grace. John Calvin once put it this way, Paul extols sublimely the grace of God toward the Ephesians to rouse their hearts to gratitude, to set them all aflame, to occupy and fill them with this thought. So, my goodness, nine different perspectives on election this morning. The preeminence, the author, the objects, the sphere, the timing, the results, the motive, the cause and the goal. Paul really wants you to get this. He really wants you to be overwhelmed by God's goodness towards you. But you say, okay, Brian, I got it. I think I understand this doctrine. I, I th- it's coming to me now. But why did God reveal this in his word to us? Is there is there a practical application we're supposed to make from this doctrine? Did God reveal this just to make us into theological eggheads, you know? Or to cause us to go around arguing with everybody who disagrees with us. Or to win debates. Or did God give it to us to make us feel superior to other people because, hey, we're the elect and they're not. None of the above. But God has given reasons why he has put this in Scripture. And I want to show you what the Bible says from the rest of the New Testament about how we are to apply this particular doctrine. Number one. God gave us the truth of election in Scripture to promote humility. He wants His people to be humble. And this is the most pride-crushing doctrine that there is. Go over with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And let's start reading in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 26. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, 
so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So the very first thing we see here is that God has chosen certain types of people. Do you see that here? What are the types of people God has chosen? Well, verse 26 says it wasn't very many wise people. Not very many mighty people. Not very many noble people. But instead of those kinds of people, he's chosen foolish people. Weak. Weak things. Base. Despised. Things that are not. Okay. So there, there, that's us. <laughs> Weak, foolish, base, despised, and things that are not. Those are the kinds of people that God chooses. Why does he do it that way? Verse 29, so that no man may boast before God. If we've got a brain surgeon, and this brain surgeon is doing this high-tech brain surgery using state-of-the-art, billion-dollar equipment to fix people's brains. Now, and he comes through and he does a successful operation. We're going to say, wow, that was amazing machinery that you used, Mr. Mr. Doctor. But if he uses a can opener and a pair of pliers to perform the same operation, we're going to say, wow, look at the skill of the surgeon. Look what he was able to do with those crude, crude stupid little instruments. And God is, he, he chooses people like us. We're the screwdriver and the pair of pliers. We're the base, foolish, despised, because he says here, so that no man may boast before God. God has revealed his electing grace to you so that you would never boast again. There's nothing to boast about, right? It had nothing to do with me. In fact, he even says, it's by his doing that you are in Christ Jesus. It wasn't even your doing that got into Christ Jesus. It was his doing. He got you in. He regenerated you. That's how he united you to his son. So the doctrine of election is intended by God to promote humility. If we're saved, let's put it this way. If someone says, I'm saved today because I chose Christ. Okay, let's just take that. And you've got that guy up in heaven. And he's saying to all the angels and all the people around him, I'm up here because I chose Jesus Christ. And that man down there in hell, he's down there because he didn't do what I did. It gives him grounds for just a little bit of boasting, taking a little bit of credit for why he's in heaven and that guy's not there. But if he's in heaven because God chose him, there isn't any boasting left. He can't take any credit at all. All of it, 100% of the glory and praise goes to God because he had nothing to do with it. God put him into Christ Jesus. And God planned to do that before the foundation of the world, according to Ephesians 1. So that's the first practical application. Let's look at the second one. To promote praise. Now we've already read this, haven't we? Ephesians 1 verses 5 and 6. What was God aiming at in election? He wants us to value, to cherish, and to praise the glory of His grace. If I believe that my election was conditional, in other words, God looked down the time tunnel, and He saw who was going to choose Him, and He says, okay, well I'll let you in, because you cho you're going to choose me, okay, come on in. That doesn't promote near the praise and glory of God's grace as looking down the time tunnel and seeing everybody's dead in sin. They're all fallen. They're all headed for eternity in hell. And God snatches one here and he snatches another there. And he says, I'm not going to let you perish. I'm going to have my way with you. I'm going to turn you around. I'm bringing you. Whew. You get, God gets the glory when, when we see things from a different perspective. Let me ask you, ladies. Let's say you just got married and you're driving off of the parking lot on your way to your honeymoon and your husband turns to you and he says, honey, I want to share something with you. Do you remember when you were a teenager in high school and you had to have that expensive operation 
and your parents had no idea where they were going to get the money from. Everybody thought you were going to die. And then all of a sudden, one day, your dad received a very big check in the mail. I was the one that did that for you. And you remember as you were growing up, you kept getting these letters and cards saying, from your secret admirer? That was me. You see, the first time I laid eyes on you, I loved you. And I determined that I would have to have you and I would do anything I had to do to get you to make you mine. Now, if that's what happened to you, ladies, would you stomp your feet and say, how dare you violate my free will? Or would you say, that's just about the most lovely thing I've ever heard in all my life? That's election right there. God determined he would do whatever he had to do to get you. Because he loved you. He set his love upon you from eternity. And that love was a saving, covenant, powerful love. And he drew you with the cords of loving kindness. He opened up your eyes. He gave you eyes to see the glory of Jesus Christ. He opened up your heart to respond to the gospel. He worked in you so powerfully that you could no longer go living in a life of sin anymore. You, Jesus became so irresistibly beautiful to you that you had to come running to him. That's what he did for you, folks. That's what election means for you. So election is given to promote humility. It's given to promote praise. It's also given to promote holiness, holiness of life. We're going to go back to that same scripture in Colossians 3.12 again. Notice the connection here. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Do you see the connection between God saying, or Paul saying, you're chosen, you're beloved, now live like this. How is a chosen person supposed to live? With a heart of compassion, a heart of kindness, a heart of humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with other people and forgiving anybody who has ought against him. What would we call a person? If you saw a person who is doing all those things in his life, what would you say about them? That's a holy man of God. That's a holy woman of God right there. Well, Paul says the inspiration for you to live that kind of life is that you have been chosen of God. Charles Spurgeon put it like this. Nothing under the gracious influence of the Holy Spirit can make a Christian more holy than the thought that he is chosen. Shall I sin after God has chosen me? Shall I transgress after such love? Shall I go astray after so much loving kindness and tender mercy? No, my God, since thou hast chosen me, I will love thee. I will live to thee. I will give myself to thee to be thine forever, solemnly consecrating myself to thy service forever. I want God's election to be a powerful motivator in your life to live a life pleasing to him. Consider it often. Number four, God has given us election to promote evangelism. Now, this is where people say, well, you people who believe in election, why should you even evangelize? If God's already chosen them, why don't you just sit on your hands and just wait until they're all saved? Well, that's really the opposite of what the Bible describes. Folks, if there is no election, there's no point in you witnessing or sharing the gospel with anybody. Right? If we take the Bible seriously, they're dead in trespasses and sins. And if it's up to them to respond to the gospel, forget it. (laughs) Let's hang up our Bibles. Let's stop going out preaching on the streets. Let's stop, you know, doing our prayer stop ministries and going door to door because nobody is ever going to get saved if there's no election. Because nobody has the ability, apart from the influence of the Spirit of Christ, to come to Jesus. That's what Jesus taught. John 6.44, they can't come. But election gives us a powerful motivator to engage in evangelism because election teaches us that God has chosen a whole host of people. Revelation 7 says it's a number no man could count. It's huge. 
I would guess in the millions, maybe millions and millions of people that God is going to redeem. That means there are people around us that God has already chosen. We just got to find them. And we just need to preach the gospel to them. And when we do, they will come under the power of the Spirit and they'll be converted. That's why you were converted. If you are converted today, it's because God had already chosen you to be saved. Let's look at a few texts like Acts 13, 48. This shows Paul and his missionary team in Pisidian Antioch. I'm just going to read one verse because it really sums up. Luke's giving us a little perspective on the missionary efforts of the Apostle Paul. Look at verse 48 from Acts 13. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Do you notice they didn't get appointed to eternal life because they believed? They believed because they were appointed to eternal life. What comes first, the chicken or the egg? What comes first, appointment to eternal life or believing? Appointment to eternal life. That comes first. And then as a result of that, we believe the gospel when it's presented to us. You see that? Notice also, as many as had been appointed to eternal life. As many. That teaches you not one more, not one less. There is a a definite number of the human family that have been appointed to eternal life. When the gospel is preached to them, at one point or another, before they die, they will embrace it and believe upon Jesus Christ and be saved. How about John chapter 10? Let's go to the words of Jesus, where he's talking about his sheep. Let's take a look at that passage. John chapter 10, look at verse 16. Jesus says, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will hear my voice, and they will become one shep- one flock with one shepherd. Now, who's these other sheep he's talking about? Do you know? The Gentiles. He ha- He's talking to Jews, and he says, I've got some other sheep that are of another fold. I've got to go bring them also. Let me, let me read it again, emphasizing certain words. I have. Not I will have. I've already got them. They're mine already. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must. Do you see the divine necessity there? He has to do it. Why? Because it's God's eternal plan. I must bring them. They're not coming on their own. It's not little Bo Peep has lost her sheep, you know, and they'll come home with their tails wagging behind them. They're not coming home. Those sheep are not coming home. He's got to go get them and bring them back or they're not coming. That's the doctrine of irresistible grace, which we're going to get to at one of these Sundays. (laughs) I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice. Most people don't hear the voice of Jesus. They hear sounds. He's talking about someone hearing the voice of Christ in their heart, so they respond in repentance. They turn from this world, the vain things of the world, and they turn to him as their treasure. They hear his voice. There were years where I didn't hear the voice of Christ. I went to church every Sunday. I didn't hear the voice of Christ. And one day I did. And it changed me forever. They will hear my voice. And they will become one flock with one shepherd. Do you see the certainty here? Do you see why we should be engaged in evangelism? Because Jesus is going to do this again. He has other sheep all over the world. That's why we give money to missions. That's why our little church gives at least 50% of everything that comes into foreign missions. We're spreading the gospel around the world because we believe there are sheep all over these tribes, peoples, tongues, and nations who God is going to call. This doesn't put out the fires of evangelism. Election fans the fires of evangelism. It spurs us on to to work with God to see the elect brought into his kingdom. We're like the little kid. And the father's out there raking the leaves, and the little kid comes out with his little broom, and he says, Daddy, can I work with you today? Now, of course, he's just kind of messing things up, and he's taking longer for the dad, but the dad says, Sure, come on in. I'll, I'll let you help me. We're the little kid. It's not like we're adding some big blessing to God by preaching or being involved in witnessing. God... 
condescends to let us be involved in his work in the world for our joy. Amen? Do you see that? So when you're evangelizing, don't look at you're, you're given some great blessing and sacrifice to God. God is letting you get in on the action so that you can participate with him and what he's already doing in the world. One final one, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10. Have you ever wondered what would motivate the Apostle Paul to go through so much suffering, so many trials? You know, how, how did he keep going in the midst of all of these trials and suffering? Well, he tells us. 2 Timothy 2.10 For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it, eternal glory. The reason I endure everything I endure, and he gives us a list of those things in Second Corinthians, you know, prison, beatings, shipwreck, going without food, fasting, sleeplessness. Paul, man, how do, what, what could possibly motivate you to do all that? I do it for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they may receive salvation, and eternal glory. That's what was spurring Paul on. He knew there were a chosen people out there and that he was wi- he was willing to endure whatever because he wanted to reach them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So election promotes humility, praise, holiness, evangelism. Number five, election promotes our comfort. Or you could put it this way, it promotes security. Now, what do you mean, Brian? Well, Romans 8.33 says, Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Okay. Who can bring a charge against one of God's chosen people? Nobody. How come? God justified them. God imputed the righteousness of Christ to them. Therefore, nobody can bring a charge against them that can stick. Sure, the devil can slander and he can bring charges, but none of it can stick because God has justified that person. See, what I'm getting at here is if our salvation is a work of man, I would have no security whether I would ever make it to the end. Because if my decision can get me into salvation, my decision can get me out. Right? If, if my de- salvation is a result of my will, then I can lose that salvation by the same will. But if my salvation was not a result of my will, but God's will, then I'm secure. Unless he fails. That's the only way I I can be lost, is if he fails. Because he's the one that got me, and he's going to have to do something to lose me, because it wasn't me that got into this thing. It was him that got me into this thing. Remember? By his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. wasn't my doing. It was his that got me there. The 17th article of the 39 articles of the Church of England. I'm going to read you the 17th article. This was a a doctrinal statement that the Church of England wrote in 1801. They said this in the 17th article. The godly consideration of predestination and our election in Christ is full of sweet, pleasant, and unspeakable comfort to godly persons. Now, if you're not a godly person, maybe it's not going to have that effect on you. But if you love Christ, this doctrine should have those kind of effects in your life. Sweet, pleasant, and unspeakable comfort. Because you realize, I'm confident that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. He's not only the author, he's also the finisher of our faith. Jeremiah 32 I'd like you to turn to this one because this is a, a beautiful passage of Scripture. Jeremiah 32, verse 40. And if you're looking for a verse to memorize, why don't you choose this one this week? Jeremiah 32, 40. I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. Did you catch that? God says, I'm going to do something, and then I'm going to put this other thing in them so that they don't do something. This everlasting covenant includes two things. 
I'm not going to turn away from them to do them good. For the rest of their existence, I'm going to be doing good to them. And I'm also going to put the fear of me in their hearts so that they won't turn away from me. Now, let me ask you, if God's not going to turn away from you, and you're not going to turn away from God, what does that mean? You're safe and secure for eternity. You see that? This is the everlasting covenant that God makes with us in Jesus Christ. So, election promotes our comfort. If you struggle with a sense of, can I hang on? Can I make it to the end? Let me just ask you one thing. Do you see any evidence in your life that God has chosen you to salvation? Ask yourself that honestly. Do I see any evidence that I am one of God's elect? Have I been born again? Do I love Him? Do I hate sin? Even though I struggle with it and am tempted by it, do I really not like it? I don't want to do it anymore, even though I still fall. When I do fall, does God discipline me and chastise me and bring me back? Do I really believe in Him? You know, these are the kinds of questions you should be asking. Do I see any of the fruit of the Holy Spirit coming forth from my life since I've come to Him? Do I see any love, any gentleness, patience, humility, things like that? If you can say yes to those things, those are fruits of God's electing grace in your life. And if you can see those things happening in your life, you ought to have strong sense of security that God who saved you is going to keep you. Not you're going to keep you. He'll keep you. Do you want more humility? Do you want more praise? Holiness? Do you want to be more zealous in evangelism? Do you want more comfort in your life? Then don't resist this doctrine in the Bible. God gave it to you so that those things would be promoted for your good. Embrace it. Believe it. Meditate on it. Meditate. Think about it from day to day. Think about, God, you, you, before the foundation of the world, you chose me. Lord, I don't get it. I don't understand it. I blows my mind. Why? I don't, I don't know why, Lord, but I thank you that you did. Let me live a life unto you that is pleasing unto you, Lord. See, that's the kind of prayer that election should inspire in the heart of a sinner. Let's pray. Lord, we do give you glory and praise for your wonderful grace that has saved wretches like us. Lord, we have no reason under heaven why we should be in your kingdom versus any other people. We ascribe it to your sovereign grace in our life, Lord. We praise you for it. We pray that you'd help us to grow in holiness, help us to grow in humility and in praise and in comfort, and in evangelism. And Lord, use this precious truth of election to inspire your people. Let us go deeper, Lord, with you. In Jesus' holy name, amen.